Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Spotlight On is brought to you by Light, the technology platform reimagining e-commerce for live events. You can learn more about Light at light.com. That's L-Y-T-E dot Today, the spotlight is on Dr. Richard Brent Turner, here to discuss his most recent book, Soundtrack to a Movement, African-American Islam, Jazz, and Black Internationalism. Dr. Turner joined the University of Iowa faculty in 2001. He's a professor of African-American religious history with appointments in the Department of Religious Studies, African-American Studies Program, and International Programs. Please pick up Dr. Turner's book. We spoke for over an hour and still did not manage to cover all I would have liked to. A more gracious and thoughtful guest I could not have asked for. Please enjoy our talk. Hey, Lawrence. Good to see you. <laughs> After much ado, how are you, sir? Oh, I'm doing doing okay. What about you? Well, I'm doing well, but clearly, clearly math is not my strong point. <laughs> it, it was never my best subject either. <laughs> I, I just have to thank you in advance. One, for making time for this, and two, for being so good-natured. Um, thank you. I really do. Well, thank you that. for inviting me. I, I'm looking um, forward to this. I have to tell you um, a few things before, uh, well, as we get started. Um, okay. Your book did for me what one hopes a book will do for them, which is I, it gave me several epiphanies about subjects that by no means am I an expert in, but that I thought I had good familiarity with. And it was just such a eye-opening work for me um, that there were several moments, which I'm, I'd like to get to in our conversation, where it just shed new light for me on, on, on some areas that, um, that I thought I knew about. So job well done. Just a wonderful, wonderful book. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Makes me feel good. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, you kind of get separated from a book after you've, um, at least I do, after I've written it and I look at it again and I wonder, like, um, who wrote it? How did I write that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we'll get into that point as well. But um, okay. let, me, uh, let me start, if I may, with, um, okay. with sort of my first, my first epiphany, which was um, you, you sort of talked about this notion of the civil rights movement and the black power movement sort of developing in parallel or existing in parallel two strands i think of the same the same notion and i think what what i didn't fully understand until i read your book is the role that jazz and islam played in sort of bridging the two movements but also in being much closer to the mainstream of both of those movements than i previously understood may have been a blind spot on my part, or it may have been just an under-recognized fact, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, um, about, about the role that jazz and Islam played alone and together in those movements. Well, you know, to get to the heart of your question, um, of course, the, you know, the civil rights movement was uh, a great, a great movement. Um, you know, it started out 
focusing on the African-American struggle for um, humanity and racial equality in this country, actually with W.E.B. Du Bois and the Niagara Movement and his book, The Souls of Black Folk in 1903. And of course, um, the civil rights movement is um, what's responsible for our legislation that helps all Americans to have the right to vote, the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act of, of 1965. Yet at the same time, there's always been uh, an internationalist global strand of the civil rights movement and W.E.B. Du Bois, um, you know, as a, as a human rights activist, saw those connections in, in, the early, um, in the early 20th century. But um, I think that many African-Americans, because uh, the, you know, most of our uh, parents and grandparents, I'm kind of going back to that era, were migrants from the South. And they were not really, um, you know, people who had a deep understanding of, you know, Black global liberation connections to, uh, you know, liberation movements in Africa and the Caribbean, because most of them had struggled as just ordinary people, working class people to move out of the American South so that they could vote. And then there's a, you know, strand of um, Afro-Caribbean people in the same era who had struggled to get out of Jamaica and Trinidad, Barbados to the Northeast for the same reason. So they could have, um, you know, a better way of life. They could determine their leaders and, you know, all those democratic values. But at the same time, the uh, black power movement was, um, was developing in black communities in this, in this country. And, um, and I think that until the 1960s, the, um, you know, the black power movement was largely invisible to a lot of white Americans because you, you saw, you probably only saw the, um, you know, the black power um, uh, members. Some of them were members of, uh, you know, Islamic communities. Uh, some were members of the nation of, of, of Islam. Uh, they were members of other, um, you know, better known um, politically oriented black power groups like the Black Panther Party. But you actually, when you grew up in a segregated black community, which I did um, from the time I was 10 years old until I went off to college at 19 years old, you saw the representatives of the black power movement selling their newspapers. Mm -hmm their magazines, and sometimes giving these away to you for free in your community, you know, because they wanted to, you know, have people, um, Black people understand their liberation in, a gl in global terms, in human rights terms. And the jazz musicians seem to be the people to get this link um, between the civil rights movement and the Black power movement uh, much more quickly than other Black people because the, the best of them were traveling across the United States. You know, um, a lot of the jazz musicians had, like most black people, tried to escape from the American South, people like Duke Ellington and settle in New York because it, it just wasn't safe for black people 
to, you know, to live and raise the children in, in many parts of the American South before, you know, before the 1960s. But also these were musicians who traveled to Europe to do concerts and, um, you know, the most famous of them did concerts and in Africa, they, you know, they, um, they, were, they were global people. And, um, and as global people, because of their music, they, um, many of them saw these political links between the, you know, the civil rights movement based primarily in the United States, of course, led um, in such a distinguished way by Martin Luther King Jr. And then the, um, the links to the Black Power movement, of course, Malcolm X became the, the major spokesperson for the, um, you know, for the Black Power movement. And then one more thing I will say is that when Malcolm X passed away, um, died, he was murdered. He was murdered. Yeah, he was murdered and um, assassinated in 1965 because his autobiography came out uh, in, that, in that same year his autobiography, which um, went on to become one of the most widely read books, believe it or not, in the United States in the 20th century, was read by um, millions of African-American youth who were, including myself, who were living in segregated communities. And of course, his autobiography was about his advance from a segregated Black community, whether it was in Michigan or he was born in Nebraska, in um, Omaha, Nebraska, but his family lived in Michigan and they escaped the Ku Klux Klan violence in Michigan. Um, you know, they were separated. Then he moved to Boston, which is my hometown, to Roxbury and to New York. And, um, you know, he was a, a juvenile delinquent, um, kind of a bad boy, bad black boy. And so many of us who grew up in, you know, the Harlem's, the Roxbury's, uh, North Philadelphia's, we saw that Malcolm X in our own communities. And, um, and, and his autobiography showed us the inner psychology of the, um, you know, the Black person who eventually became a Black power um, human rights activist, but somebody who has started out at the bottom of society, really at the bottom of the of the black community um, in a sense as an orphan, completely separated from his parents and, you know, moving to Boston um, to live with this um, half sister Ella in 1940 to save, to save his life from, you know, uh, I guess, you know, uh, being under the, uh, the watch of the, of, of, uh, of the state of Michigan because his mother had, his father had been uh, murdered in a white supremacist context and, and by 1940, and his mother had had a nervous breakdown and was in a, um, you know, a uh, mental hospital that she couldn't get out of until the 1960s. So I, I would like to explore a little more or probably a lot more around around Malcolm X. But um, before I do that, just to finish the strand um, of some of the context you were just providing, um, there's several references in the book, but um, you didn't go too far down the, um, the rabbit hole. I wonder if you could just for our listeners, can you talk about what, if any, role 
um, Marcus Garvey may have played in introducing like the internationalist strand um, into the American civil rights movement or American civil rights consciousness? Well, he played a tremendous, a tremendous role because of course, Marcus Garvey, um, you know, uh, in terms of his life journey, moving from Jamaica to, um, to London, to New York City, was, was um, on the one hand, a person who was familiar to um, hundreds of thousands of African-Americans who lived in the Northeast and communities like Harlem and Roxbury were uh, actually the, um, the makeup of our communities was, uh, you know, a lot of Southern migrants from places like North Carolina and Virginia, uh, uh, probably a small number of, of Blacks who were born in the North. And then also a lot of um, immigrants from Jamaica, Barbados, Trinidad, and we all kind of lived together, some Puerto Ricans, also lived on the edge of our communities, Italians, small number. But Marcus Garvey, um, you know, he led the largest Pan-African um, and most successful Pan-African uh, movement in, um, in, American, in American history, the Universal Negro Improvement Association. And um, that, that organization, which, um, you know, focused on a global understanding of, uh, of, of Black power that um, Black people needed to own everything and trade among themselves globally to, you know, um, they needed to own their means of production. Um, they needed to have their own country. And actually, Marcus Garvey, before um, he was put on trial by the U.S. government, was negotiating, I, I believe, with um, an African country to buy a space in um, West Africa where any person of African um, descent in the African diaspora who was trying to escape racial persecution could come and live and have citizenship and live in peace. He had international trading going between um, uh, you know, Blacks in the United States and Blacks in the African diaspora with his Black Star ship line. He popularized the idea that Black is beautiful, and he did that in the 1920s. Um, before Malcolm X, he made Harlem um, as his base, and he made Harlem into the focal point for Pan-African, uh, you know, uh, 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 movements, for civil rights movements, for Black power movements. So Marcus Garvey was, was extremely powerful, and he was feared by the FBI and the U.S. government, and um, he was stopped by in a, you know, a trumped up, by a trumped up child trial on uh, mail fraud charges. And, and um, you know, um, you know, at that time, just before he was stopped, his movement had um, thousands of followers in the United States who were members, probably hundreds of thousands of sympathizers throughout the world. It had um, you know, his form of Pan-Africanism, his form of Black power had chapters on several different continents because he, uh, he himself, once again, had traveled um, before he came to the United States to look at the situation of Blacks living in Latin America. He knew about the situation of Blacks living in the Caribbean. 
And, um, and, and of course he made his base in New York, in New York City. So um, he really was considered to be a, a threat to the American mainstream. Not that he was attacking white people, not because he was attacking capitalism, but because he was encouraging black people to, you know, to use their money among themselves and to establish their own country. Actually, he, he envisioned a, a black country with a military base to it. And, um, and then he was put in prison by the end of the 1920s. I think that he was taken out of prison in Atlanta because the President of the United States and the FBI feared keeping Marcus Garvey in the United States, even if he was incarcerated. And um, and um, and eventually he was um, let out of prison and he was not allowed to ever come back to the United States again. And Marcus Garvey died in London, England, mm. I believe, in the 19 in the 1940s. So Malcolm X certainly was greatly influenced by, uh, by Marcus Garvey, a lot of black people um, in the um, early to mid 20th century, especially people of Caribbean descent. And of course, Malcolm X was um, half Caribbean. His mother was from Grenada. His father was from Georgia. They were very much influenced by Marcus Garvey's ideas about human dignity for blacks, civil rights, Pan-Africanism, and also this idea that black is beautiful, that, you know, black people's skin, their physical features are beautiful, that um, their culture is beautiful, and that uh, black people, and, and, and his major belief is, was um, Africa, uh, is that um, black people in the African diaspora would never be free until African nations were free of colonialism. So he had this global understanding of, um, of, of, black, of black liberation. And he had businesses. You know, um, the Marcus Garvey movement was known for its um, small business ventures and in American cities that employed black people. So there was a black capitalist component yeah. to his movement. Yeah, and that to me, um, that's, that's something that struck me as a direct connection to sort of... Um, to Malcolm and more specifically to the nation of Islam, you know, the, that model of, um, of empowerment, keeping the money in the community, um, ownership, uh, entrepreneurism, uh, seems to be a direct, a direct lineage from the Garvey movement. Would that be? And fair? a number of the, um, African-American, uh, Muslim communities like the, um, you know, the, uh, Moorish, American Science Temple, which preceded the Nation of Islam, they they were their leaders were appealing to Marcus Garvey to see if 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 they could become the official religion of the Garvey movement. But Garvey actually developed his own official religion called the African Orthodox Church. Was that was it rooted in Christianity or was it was it an African belief system? What I... no, it was rooted in Christianity. It was um, he actually um, had a bishop of that church, and I believe the um, it, the church had some linkages in terms of ritual to uh, you know to to um, you know kind of high rituals in Christianity, such as you would get in. A, you know, uh, the Episcopal Church, the 
Catholic Church, Eastern Orthodox um, traditions and, uh, you know, um, but um, a number of groups, um, religious groups were um, connected to the Garvey movement, including a, a whole group of, um, of, of black Christian ministers who subscribed to Garveyism. Hmm. And then the fascinating thing about Garvey is that, um, you know, a, an Indian missionary group, which was very wealthy, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, which had just come to the United States to do missionary work. They had been, their missionaries had been in, uh, in Europe doing missionary work before 1920, but, you know, the movement originated in, in India in the, um, in the late 1800s. They had settled in uh, Chicago by 1920, the missionaries for the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, and they were able to make linkages with the Marcus Garvey movement and, 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 um, and different people who were Garveyites um, converted to, um, to, the, to Islam. In their, um, in their uniforms, in their Marcus Garvey uniforms. So they had these, they had a, a linkage to Marcus Garvey and his newspaper. And the other big thing is he published a global um, black newspaper called The Negro World, which was circulated uh, across the United States, across the African diaspora world in Africa, and it was also translated into different um, languages that, you know, black people in the African diaspora spoke, from, you know. So it was an attempt to create a global dialogue. It was a it was a global it was a global political movement, a global religious movement. And um, but, you know, I, I guess the thing that got to the FBI and got to the power structure in the United States is that they wanted black people to to use their money among themselves to develop their own businesses and, you know, and, um, and um, to have their own form of black capitalism separate from, you know, white forms of capitalism. And he was also preaching that black people should have their own country. And he believed that he would be able to do that by, you know, buying land in Africa and having a kind of, um, you know, the, uh, um, scholars in that era called it black Zionism. Yeah. Yeah. Believe it or not. Yeah, that, that's yeah. what they called it. I, I don't like those, <laughs> those, those linkages, but was the idea of, of, uh, you know, that uh, Marcus Garvey understood that black people were an unusual group of people. They uh, have been separated completely from their land of origin through transatlantic slavery over several decades. Um, you know, millions of them had perished in the, you know, in transatlantic slavery along the Atlantic Ocean. And they were a people, according to Marcus Garvey, without a country, without a military to protect them. Yeah. Uh, not, to, not to spend too much more, more time on, on Garvey, but something that, that has struck me um, is that, and I think it's a measure of something you said a few minutes ago, of just how dangerous he has been perceived or he was perceived in his own time and, and, and I think continues to be is that there seems to be an inordinate amount of effort on the part of mainstream scholars to paint him as um, a charlatan figure 
to overemphasize maybe the failed businesses or how he was undermined in his businesses. Um, I remember maybe 10 or 15 years ago reading a biography. Um, I forget the author's name. He's also written about reggae artists and stuff. But so, so it was a white scholar. And I remember reading the book thinking, this man hates the subject that he's writing this 400-page book about. It was just, um, you know, I can understand a balanced portrait. I have no problem with that. But right. it was so clearly agenda-driven, and it was about undermining his legitimacy, I think would be the way to say it. And it's amazing to me that, you know, even a figure who, much more recent, like Malcolm X, who was, you know, a powerful, uh, polarizing figure, has been sort of recast. And a lot of it was how he spent, I think, his final year and months, but, and the success of the autobiography. But Marcus Garvey is still not sort of, you know, he's not, he's not been accepted as a legitimate figure, I think, in some circles. Is I, that think, fair? I, I think there's a lot of scholarship out here that has legitimized Marcus Garvey by Tony Martin, professor at Wellesley College, He's written, you know, a balanced um, book about Marcus Garvey, Race First, Theo Theodore Vincent, um, Black Power and the Garvey Movement. Uh, Eula Taylor has written a, a book about Marcus Garvey's wife, Amy Jock Garvey. So there's a there's a lot of balanced um, scholarship uh, out out there. I you know. I guess Marcus Garvey, because of the times that he was living in, the 1920s and his movement was short-lived, really didn't have a chance to defend himself and to speak up for himself. And, um, and of course, because he was exiled from the United States for the rest of his life after he was released from prison. And um, so, um, um, you know, if he had been able to um, to um, continue his movement in the United States with Harlem as its base, I, it, it, it just would have grown into a, you know, a phenomenal um, global Pan-African organization. But um, that just was not meant to be. The U.S. government, uh, the intelligence community didn't want that to happen. And then, of course, the 1920s was a, a period when the um, black people um, were being lynched and uh, burned at the stake in various parts of this country, primarily in the American South and in the Midwest, so that um, you know Garvey had to contend with those um, those kinds of um, almost genocidal yeah. politics. And of course, the 1920s was the the period when the Tulsa race massacre happened. And of course, Tulsa, Oklahoma is not the only place where, um, you know, white mobsters went into black towns, you know, where black people were successful with their own business bases and, um, and owning homes and farmlands, you know, just a generation couple of generations away from slavery. And it wasn't the only place where black people were massacred out of jealousy, you know? Jealousy. Yeah. Fear and jealousy. Yeah. 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 Jealousy and racism. So you have to look at Marcus Garvey from the, um, the decade that he, um, he created this movement and those values that he created 
of, um, you know, of, of Pan-Africanism, uh, global black liberation, Africa for Africans at home and abroad. Um, that was one of his models. Another one of his models was up you mighty race. You can accomplish what you will. All of that cut complete, completely against the grain of the ways in which the, um, you know, the United States wanted black people to, um, you know, to see them, to see themselves as a, as an exploited people, as an inferior group of people. Um, on the topic of Malcolm, another sort of epiphany for me, um, if I could say it that way, was that um, I didn't realize he maintained his connection to the jazz world um, so late into his ministering life. Um, I don't know why. It could be because I read the autobiography. Um, I haven't I haven't revisited it in probably a decade and I just forgot. But I really thought that I thought the jazz scene and the jazz world was was sort of part and parcel of the life he left behind. I didn't realize how, um, you know, how he really he he ministered within that community. But then, of course, the big the biggest revelation in your book overall was just the prevalence of Islam, both Nation of Islam and the Amakdaya movement in the jazz world of the forties, fifties, and sixties. Um, it, that was, it was such a, um, it was such a fun exploration to undertake. Um, in I'm glad you book. liked that. Yeah, it was, it was really incredible. Um, but could you talk a little bit about Malcolm's relationship? Not, not with jazz as sort of an abstract concept, but with the jazz community, specifically the musicians and, and what it meant to him and what he meant to the musicians. If, if you have that insight. Well, I, I think that, um, Malcolm X saw jazz, uh, of course, as a, as a movement that had some of the most um, wonderful music in the world at, at that particular time in the 1940s when he stepped into jazz clubs in, in, in Boston, Massachusetts, you know, Duke Ellington, Count Basie, uh, uh, you know, Billie Holiday, all of these people were you know, beginning to be at the height of their um, creative powers. And so on the one hand, I see Malcolm X as somebody who just loved the music. He, he was a, a great jazz dancer of the Lindy Hop. You know? yeah. <laughs> that's extremely, that's extremely well, well known. And he also saw um, jazz as a counter cultural movement because the, um, a number of the, uh, the jazz fans uh, who were African-American and uh, um, Caribbean-American and Latinx were wearing zoot suits mm -hmm. in, the 19, in the 1940s. And, you know, um, they were wearing these kind of um, exaggerated um, suit jackets that used a lot of material uh, to make at a time when the American government was trying to limit the amount of, um, of materials that people used to, to make their clothing because of the, you know, the war industry. And um, the zoot suitors were in many different parts of the United States. They, you know, some of them were like Malcolm X going to the, 
you know, the Savoy Ballroom in Harlem, one of the greatest, uh, you know, jazz clubs in the 1940s and, and dancing and different jazz clubs in Boston. But also there were Zoot Suiters in Los Angeles and, uh, and in other parts of California. And, um, and of course, there have been the Zoot Suit riots mm-hmm. in the 1940s where American servicemen had come into Los Angeles during a certain period of time, and they they just started attacking, um, you know, um, zoot suitors who were of Mexican descent, actually tearing their clothing off of their bodies, beating them savagely in the streets. Because I, I guess jazz was seen as a, um, you know, as a... Um, as a countercultural youth movement, as um, you know, a movement that represented the um, the um, um, aesthetic of the most marginalized youth in the United States, you know, youth of color, African Americans, and Malcolm X just kind of fit into this whole um, scheme of the um, you know of the music, the dancing. Um, you know, the fun of going to a, a jazz club and, and um, meeting beautiful women in these, in these, in these jazz clubs. And, and of course, he got involved in some of the negative elements of club life that some of this is, is not just uh, a part of his period in the 1940s, but of young people who are involved in club life in any period of time. He, he got involved with drugs. He started um, dealing uh, marijuana to jazz musicians up and down the East Coast because eventually he, uh, he moved from um, Boston to New York City and fell in love with New York City. He was just a teenager when all of that, when all of that happened. And so I, I think that uh, jazz is what gave Malcolm X, who was a working class uh, black kid, uh, meaning it gave him, a, a, you know, a, a sense of, 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 of doing something that uh, he could excel at as a teenager, because really Malcolm X was um, kind of like an orphan. His, um, he was living with his half-sister, Ella, in Boston, separated from his mother. Um, during his teenage years, he was an eighth grade dropout. So he was not going to school. He was working in, um, you know, in manual labor jobs, and he didn't like that. So going to a club and, you know, dancing the Lindy Hop and hobnobbing with um, musicians like Billy Holiday, Duke Ellington, and uh, meeting beautiful women is one of the things that um, I, I guess helped Malcolm X to survive as a teenager during during World War II. And when he got out of um, prison and he became a minister for the Nation of Islam, I believe that Malcolm X understood that there was a whole um, component of um, of young black people that he could um, appeal to to convert to the nation of, of Islam. And they were in the jazz communities. And um, Elijah Muhammad, who himself was a political prisoner during World War II, you know, he had been in um, prison in the Midwest with his son because the nation of Islam 
uh, saw itself as, uh, a, you know, the beginning of a black nation and refused to serve in the military during World War II. So um, Elijah Muhammad was a, 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 you know, a conscientious objector, but he was incarcerated for that. When he got out of prison, he saw Malcolm X as somebody who could be a youth leader, a youth recru recruiter for the nation of Islam. And so, of course, Malcolm X, he started recruiting um, young Black people from the places that he had been in Boston and New York, on the street corners, in the jazz clubs. And, and he, um, you know, he spoke the language of jazz. He, he understood the attraction of the music to young people. He understood the countercultural um, element of, of the jazz community for black, for black youth. And he played on all of that. And um, he began um, converting large numbers of African-American youth all over the country to the nation of Islam in the 1950s and into the 1960s. And he never, I don't, I don't believe that Malcolm ever, uh, ever um, lost his love of the music because of course my book is, is trying to make the point that, um, you know, when you get to the mid 1960s and you look at people like John Coltrane and Miles Davis, you're looking at people who were composing some of the greatest music in the world at that particular point in time. So yeah, you always love the music. Yeah. I, at the risk of, of skipping ahead too far, um, because there's a lot or uh, certainly a bunch more I'd like to cover before we dive deep into Coltrane. All right. one, one question that really stood out for me, though, um, and as I was as I was approaching towards the sort of end of the book where you where you really get into Coltrane, I had such a sense of anticipation and excitement because um, I knew it was coming. I knew there was going to be a, a real deep dive into into Coltrane. Um, do we know if Malcolm and Coltrane met? Um, we don't know if Malcolm and Coltrane met. I would now I would assume that um, but I don't have any evidence for that that they, um, they probably met because Coltrane was attending Malcolm X's speeches in, um, in Harlem, um, you know, uh, anytime that he could. Coltrane, you know, of course, lived in New York City and, um, and then he lived, uh, lived on Long Island, but um, he was really fascinated by Malcolm X and impressed by Malcolm X's um, ideas and by um, his speeches. So certainly there's a strong chance that, that, that they, that they, that they did, that they, they did meet, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You had the quote from Alice where, where, for Alice Coltrane, where she said something to that effect of, she recalled, uh, John used to go into the, to see Malcolm speak and spoke very highly of him. Um, yeah. so at the very least we know he attended the, the talks. Well, to, to, to bridge into music now, or the music okay. element of this story, um, because there, there is so much to, um, to unpack there. I think one of the things that, that also enlightened me from your book is that, or, or one of the things that had kept me in the dark, was that I viewed so many of these topics simply through the lens of music and entertainment, not a broader cultural or political context. Of course, I knew so many of the musicians were, you know, involved in the civil rights movement or the black power movement or various struggles and spoke out in different ways. But I always viewed it through the lens of, you know, there was the, this sort of trend in the fifties, right? Where 
like exoticism was a big thing. So whether it was, um, you know, jazz, uh, it's stuff that veered into like lounge music because it would have like a Middle Eastern theme or a Hawaiian theme or, you know, those, those types of elements were always kind of played for a kitsch factor. Um, but what I didn't realize was on the other end of that extreme, you know, you, you brought up the artist um, Ahmed Abdul Malik. Yes. And when I looked him up on Spotify and listened to those records, you know, um, that was the beginning sort of to me of like fusion world music um, in a very non-kitschy way, a very naturalistic way. Um, and when I when I was doing some more research on him, what I found, though, was like some of his tracks were on these compilation records where it was like the exotic jazz music of the Middle East. You know, it wasn't it was taken more as a, um, a novelty factor, whereas his his records themselves were not were not like that. We're not sort of lightweight in any way. Um, but I always saw the introduction of maybe African rhythms or Eastern instruments more through the lens of a musical journey and less as a spiritual except for Coltrane, because I'm, I'm a bit more steeped in his journey, but I, I never viewed it through that, that lens. And um, I, re I sort of regret that now as, as a lifelong music lover. Um, but uh, this idea that I, I had no idea so many of the jazz musicians of that era, even, even the, your, your, your discussion about Charlie Parker and whether or not he actually converted or was just very, very interested in the religion. I had no idea about Lee Morgan. Um, Never mind, you know, uh, Art Blakey, Max Roach, I knew McCoy Tyner, so many of the, the greats, so many of the greats um, became involved with Islam. Um, and uh, it was a big part of their musical development and their artistic development. Um, that, that was that was very eye opening to me. And I think so a couple of things I'd like to ask you about there. Okay. Um, one is. Um, could you talk to you a little bit about you? You use the, the the term identity claims, and as 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 explored that theme in your book, how both what was threatening and what was um, empowering around this notion of um, identifying with the African and Asiatic elements of Islam, um, as opposed to just a Black African American identity, and and what that what that what power that brought the individual? Like, could, could you just unpack that a little bit for me and, and explain to the, the audience a little bit about the identities of Islam? Well, I, I think that the um, jazz musicians were um, um, in the 1950s and 60s were, um, were people actually who were approachable in the African-American community, even people like Coltrane. And they were also approachable even in the 19, even in the early 1970s, because, um, you know, um, when they, um, I guess in the 1950s, when 40s and 50s, when they came to major American cities to, um, to perform, for the most part, they couldn't live in the, um, they couldn't stay in the hotels because of, um, you know, racial segregation. So they, they stayed. People like Duke Ellington and John Coltrane had specific people that they oftentimes stayed with when they performed in Boston. You know, people who, who owned homes in the, black, in the black community. It's amazing. 
And, um, and I think that in, um, you, you have to kind of think about the, um, the African-American communities from the 1940s to the 1960s as um, these spaces that were, um, you know, they were multicultural. Um, um, they were segregated racially, but you had, um, and at least in the Northeastern, Northeastern African-American communities, you had people who were Protestants, they, they, were, they were Catholics, um, they, um, some people were Jewish, Black Jewish groups. Some people were um, beginning to convert to Islam. And, um, and of course, you once again, you had, um, you know, you had immigrants from the, um, from the West Indies. They were very numerous. So, you know, they had an international um, understanding of colonialism, yeah. having migrated from, you know, Jamaica and Barbados and places like that. And you, all, you also had in the Northeast, uh, um, Black communities, people from Africa, and so there were always these, um, these um, Black people who had a global perspective about their Blackness and about politics within the local African-American communities where the majority of the people were um, not thinking on that, on that level. They were just trying to, you know, they were kind of like immigrants um, in, a, in a way, they were Southern migrants coming to the North because they could vote for the first time. They could attempt to pursue the American dream by working in industrial jobs or attempting to own property. But on the other hand, and, and certain spaces and, um, and, and most of these East Coast segregated African-American communities, you have people who who were preaching these global perspectives. And of course, um, Harlem was a place where that was happening in a big way. Um, and it still is happening in, in a big way. Um, um, the black community in Boston had, you know, certain areas where the, uh, the um, members of the Nation of Islam were, would pursue people and try to sell you their newspaper. If they couldn't sell it to you, they want to give it away to you. And, and they would tell you, you know, you're not a Negro, you're not colored, you know, you're um, a person of African descent, you're black. There's a history, you know, that yeah. predates um, slavery and uh, you've got to change the way that you think. So I, I think the, the jazz musicians were kind of ahead of all of this, once again, because um, among the uh, most talented of them, they they have global travel perspectives to bring back to the black community, yeah. and um, and um, so I I I, I, I kind of see them in that uh, you know in that group of people who were um, among the trendsetters of and. Um, segregated black communities, um, bringing these new global perspectives about, um, about blackness that 
I guess the majority of African-Americans weren't thinking about that in the 1940s and the 1950s. They didn't see themselves as black people. They saw themselves as colored people and as, and as Negroes. That's what was on their birth certificates. Yeah. It's like a branch cut off from its roots. Um, well, it's, it's, it's the way that the American government had, um, had kind of branded um, black people. It's a name that uh, Negro colored. These are the names that the uh, that were given to um, people of African descent during um, enslavement. Negro and colored are not names that um, you know that enslaved people choose chose to call themselves because enslaved people, you know, actually. Um, you know, um, going back to the beginning of the transatlantic slave trade in the 1500s, did not see Africa as as a as a as a race. They saw themselves as members of of different, very ancient um, ethnic groups or tribal groups with their own languages and their own religions. But transatlantic slavery and the various governments that were involved in that, including the United States, gave these names. To um, you know, to ex to to enslave people, ex-slaves and their descendants, to um, you know, to divide and conquer them. And so, um, I think one of the fascinating things about the uh, some of the jazz musicians and and the Muslims is that they were trying to um, you know break the ice yeah. to to make. Black people understand that you're not a Negro. The Nation of Islam called uh, Black people the so-called Negro, you know, <laughs> the so-called, the so-called uh, Negro. And, um, and, and, and so there were these global perspectives in Black communities. Um, they may not have been the majority perspectives in the 1940s and 50s, but they were represented by some of the jazz musicians and by, you know, by some of the Muslims who lived in, uh, in African-American communities. Do we know, um, do scholars know today how prevalent Islam was amongst the enslaved people in America? We do know because there is, there are now, uh, books on this subject, like, uh, um, Sylvian Diaz's Servants of Allah, um, my first book, Islam in the African-American Experience, documents um, the known ins, you know, enslaved Muslims in the United States. There's Michael Gomez's um, you know, book, um, Black Crescent. And actually, um, enslaved um, Muslims were, um, they could have been 15 to 20 percent. Hmm of the um the africans who were brought across the atlantic ocean through in the transatlantic slave trade and you know that number is a vast number it could have been 16 million people who were um kidnapped and forcibly put on 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 slave ships and brought to various places in the americas and the west african muslims um were very um fascinating in the United States and all over the, uh, you know, the, the Western Hemisphere, they were not just in the United States. You know, West African Muslims who were enslaved, they were in Trinidad, 
Brazil is a big place where they were, where they had their own mosque and they, uh, they were uh, uh, speaking uh, Yoruba, Arabic. Um, um, they were known to be people who, um, you know, who continue to um, speak Arabic and write in Arabic, even in the United States. The first Arabic manuscript um, published in the United States was written by a black West African Muslim slave who came from a scholarly family, Omar Ibn Said in North Carolina. And, and it's his story. Clearly, I have more follow-up reading to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so another another thing that was really just so revelatory was, um, and again, because I only ever viewed it through a musical context, was the relationship or the um, the impact of Ellington and Coltrane working together. Um, and of course, in retrospect, it, it should have been much more obvious to me, right? The era in which they collaborated, you know, the album came out in what the mid the early sixties. So there's so much in the air at that time, but um, the way you talked about um, Ellington's travels um, to Africa and to, um, and to middle Eastern countries. Um, I just had, I had no idea of, um, you know, that element of his consciousness. Um, and uh I wonder if maybe you could t tell our listeners a little bit about um, that, that part of Duke Ellington's sort of life or career and um, maybe how he and train came together or influenced each other and the, and the, how Ellington spent some of the time around that album. Well, you know, I, 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 I don't see that album as a, as a, um, as a piece of work in which um John Coltrane was able to influence Duke Ellington um, to, um, to think about his spirituality in the same way that John Coltrane That's was right. thinking about all of these spiritual influences um, outside of Christianity. But on the other hand, Ellington, as you mentioned, he, um, because he was one of the greatest musicians in the world in the 20th century. He was traveling all over the world beginning in the 1920s. And he traveled to, to a number of Muslim majority countries. And unfortunately, because this book was finished, at, um, was finished um, it went to press as a, just as the COVID-19 <laughs> pandemic began. And I was unable to, um, you know, to go back to um, a number of the archives that I had visited, like the Smithsonian, and get photographs and illustrations. Um, I, I, I don't have that um, photographic evidence in my book, but at the Smithsonian um, Library, I uncovered uh, uh, different programs with Ellington's picture where he was performing in Muslim-majority countries and all of the program was written in Arabic. Yeah, pictures of Duke Ellington, uh, you know, um, performing on the streets in, um, in India and Pakistan uh, with street musicians trying to learn the, um, the indigenous um, instruments that they that they were playing, and um, and then of course he had a famous um, concert that he did in uh, Senegal, 
in West Africa, in which he acknowledged that. Um, and of course, Senegal is a French Islamic nation, but he acknowledged that, um, you know, that, that um, his African identity when he went back there to, you know, to play in, 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 that, in that concert. Um, and um, so Duke Ellington, certainly I, I did find through research, he had, he employed um, musicians in his band who had converted to Islam. He acknowledged that. He saw the linkages between um, the Marcus Garvey movement and those jazz musicians who, uh, who, were, who had converted to Islam or were converting to Islam in the 1940s and the 1950s. But um, I was very surprised to find, to find those linkages. But of course, I'm not trying to make the case in my book that Duke Ellington um, you know, converted to Islam or thought about converting to Islam. I, I you know, I didn't see any, any evidence of that. Yeah. But there was um, an impact of, you know, on him, a, a cultural impact when he performed in all these Muslim majority countries. Yeah, it to me that that it was one of the more sort of exciting vignettes from the book. Just reading that section was, I don't know, it was it was it just added another another dimension to an already fascinating um, and important character. Um, well, it was you know it was important for me because I lived in a home in Boston, Massachusetts, where uh, you know my parents were Southern migrants from North Carol North Carolina. Um, you know, during World War II, and they owned a big home in, in, in Roxbury, the Black community, and uh, they only played Duke Ellington. <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of grew up listening to Duke Ellington all the time. I was surrounded by these, these albums of Duke Ellington. They, especially my father, he just admired Duke Ellington so much. And, and actually, I didn't really think very much about Duke Ellington as a, as a kid. I just kind of thought about that as, you know, that's what my father plays all yeah. the time. But um, I was fascinated to, to do all of this research on, on Duke Ellington because I kind of grew up listening to his music in the background in our home. You know? Yeah. And do we know, I know we're coming close to the end of our time together. So um, I right. try to be respectful of your time. Okay. Um, do we know, I feel like it's 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 not explicitly stated one way or the other, confirmed or dismissed. Do we know if if Dizzy Gillespie converted, or was he just a, a, a an admirer or or sympathetic to the religion? No, Dizzy Gillespie did not convert to to Islam. Um, there is documentation in his autobiography to be or not to bop that he did think about it because he employed a, a, a number of jazz musicians who converted to Islam. And one of the things he, he saw is when they traveled down south, um, they were not forced to, um, you know, to um, enter in the back door of um, businesses. They were able to eat in restaurants because they, they told the people that they were not Negroes, they were Muslims. Wow. So he saw some of advantage in escaping the, I guess, the, the most racist aspects of Negro identity when you traveled in the American South, and that is you couldn't, you know, you had to go through the back door, or you couldn't eat in restaurants. But um, he did admire 
certain things about the uh, Muslim musicians in his band and about their religion. I think he did mention that he had, um, you know, looked at the Quran, but he, Duke Ellington converted to the Baha'i faith. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. Yeah, he converted to the Baha'i faith. He did not. Um, but there was a, I believe that there was a photograph in a major, um, um, one of those big, glossy magazines in the 1950s that, um, um, I don't know if it was Look or if it was Life magazine uh, um, that um, gave the impression that Duke Ellington had converted to Islam, but he did not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not Duke Ellington, but Dizzy, Dizzy, Dizzy yeah, Dizzy, Dizzy Gillespie, Dizzy. Yes. yeah. Um, so I, I guess we're going to give Coltrane a little bit short shrift because of our time, but um, okay. which is sad to do, but. Um, are you comfortable at all speculating as to maybe where was Train going? Um, I, I think about it a lot in the context of his music um, in terms of, you know, where where jazz was going, at, uh, you know, sort of at the, at the beginning, of the late 60s, early 70s. Like, I can't imagine a world necessarily where Train was going to go electric, per se. Or, you know, I look at like McCoy Tyner. He's the closest analog I have to that. And McCoy never went electric his innovations were more around arrangement and okay. instrumentation, um, whereas almost universally his peers, all their innovations were around, um, you know, the, the electronic world, synthesizers, et cetera. Um, so I, I guess I guess my question is twofold about Train. Where was he? Where where would you like to speculate he was going musically? And then in his spiritual development, um, you know, we know where Alice Coltrane sort of wound up heading. And I yeah. wonder if if you make a case about the influence of Islam in Train's thought, at least, and in some of his poetry and writings, certainly in Love Supreme. Um, but I wonder, was he going towards a specific path or was he going more universalist? You know, I think at the end of his life, he was going more towards the uh, more... Uh, universal world music, so-called third world music, because we do know from an interview with um, Youssef Latif, you know, as a Muslim, uh, where Coltrane was going, he was going to um, to West Africa with Youssef Latif. Mm-hmm. And just before he died, and, and also um, they had um, concerts. Um, this is, you know, um, he and Youssef Latif and some other musicians had a series of concerts scheduled. Um, one of them was going to be at Carnegie Hall just before Coltrane died. He was, um, you know, uh, performing at um, Ola Tunji's center, cultural center for um, African, uh, his center for African culture in Harlem. That's where Coltrane did one of his last concerts. And also, we know from um, Youssef Latif's interview that uh, Coltrane wanted jazz to be performed in a more dignified setting. So he actually was uh, had been um, um, looking at properties in New York City where he could have his own jazz club free from alcohol and drugs where um, 
you know, even children could come in there because they would serve cheese and sandwiches to hear this, to hear this great music. Where was Coltrane going at the end of his life? I think he was, he was um, searching for, um, you know, uh, more uh, spiritual inspiration from God. I, you know, um, I, I believe with the album, A Love Supreme, that um, perhaps, um, and you can't say decisively on this, that um, perhaps Coltrane had, um, you know, kind of uh, reached the limit of his, um, of his explorations, spiritual explorations of Islam through his music, through a spiritual life. Um, because, of course, his, um, his second wife, Alice Coltrane, um, was going in a different, a different direction, you know, with yeah. Hinduism. Yeah. And, um, and from, you know, interviews that Youssef Latif um, did, um, and Youssef Latif knew Coltrane's first wife, um, Naima, who was a Muslim very well. I think that's where a lot of Coltrane's Islamic influences initially came from because he was married, he was married to a Muslim wife. And um, it's hard to say where Coltrane was going because um, of course there's a, an Islamic connection when you're making all of these um, big musical and travel plans with Youssef Latif, who was a devout Muslim, you know, yeah. and also a great, a great um, jazz musician in, a, in his own right. Um, it would be hard to say what the impact of um, traveling to Africa with Youssef Latif would have had on his music and and um and 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 his and his life um he certainly was very fascinated by um you know by um a variety of third world musical forms at the at the end of his life you know he did a concert in japan towards the towards the end of his life and he wanted to immediately go to the to the um, places where the atomic bombs were dropped so that he could feel the spiritual and the musical vibes that were still reverberating in those spaces and um, where people, you know, people had been, been murdered by the atomic bomb. Um, um, certainly he was exploring Buddhism. Um, it's it's hard. It's really hard to it's really hard to to pin him down because he died so suddenly, yeah. and um, um, as a as a fairly young man in his in his forties, um, and apparently until he actually did die um, from you know from cancer, he didn't he didn't. I don't think that he realized that he was going to die that early because Yusef Latif says that Coltrane. Um, had met with his realtor, um, and this is a, I think, a few weeks before he died, and he wanted to purchase, um, you know, property um, somewhere closer to New York City because he was living on Long Island. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing, and it's interesting because his music had gone to such a, um, I hate to use the word, but for lack of a better one, to such an extreme. Um, 
it, it would have been, it's very hard to sort of extrapolate as to what his next step would have been other than a turn like going to Africa or br bringing rhythm back somehow because he had taken sort of the, the exploration of tone and dissonance so far. Um, That's right. I couldn't imagine what, what would be on the other side of that. Um, One jazz um, saxophonist, professional jazz saxophonist that I've talked to about this has said that Coltrane was talking to God. That that's what that is all about. Coltrane was talking to God. That's what all the dissonance was about. Uh, and um, and then you know some um, uh, political activists and jazz musicians in that era believed that the you know the dissonance and Coltrane's music reflected the dissonance and and black American life that, sur you know, that surrounded him, that surrounded African-Americans in, in the, um, you know, in the late 1960s when Coltrane died. Yeah, it's possible to overlay both of those interpretations. But we, we don't know exactly where Coltrane um, was, was going with his music, where he was going with his uh, spirituality. And, uh, but I, um, and, um, you know, I, I think that from what I've read of Alice Coltrane, she doesn't really give us an exact roadmap about that either. Yeah, I mean, interestingly enough for how, you know, they put out a bunch of music posthumously. I think she was always very respectful about letting the music come out and not bringing her own interpretation to his intention. I've always really appreciated it. It could be confounding when you want more and you want to know more. But I've always appreciated that about her. And I think it served the legacy well to not have a heavy interpretation laid upon it. I think so. And also, I, I guess they, uh, I don't guess, I, they had such a short-lived marriage. And, uh, and they had, a, uh, and they had a, a number of children together in a very short period of time. And they, they were both um, geniuses as in the type of music that they were creating. So they were very, very busy um, people and, and, you know, in all of the areas of, of their lives for the, for the few number of years that they were together. Yeah. Before I let you go, happening. may I ask, do you, did, this is sort of a music fan question. Um, okay. Do you have a favorite era of Coltrane's music? To tell the truth, um, I love, um, uh, what what would I say? There are certain there are certain um, um, performances of Coltrane that I absolutely love. I love Afro Blue. Yeah, I love Afro Blue. I love my favorite things. Um, um, I love a Love Supreme, but I I only will listen to a Love Supreme when I feel like I'm I'm clean. Like, for instance, I mean, I to tell the truth, I, I you know if I um, when I've done lectures and, uh, uh, you know, Muslim Imam has been at, 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 at the lecture, you know, one of them in Seattle, he took me to a, you know, uh, an African Muslim store and, and, and purchased a Quran for me. And he told me, I want you to read this and you have to wash your hands before you touch it. <laughs> you know, you have to be clean. So, 
A love supreme for me is something that I, I will only listen to when I feel like I've, I'm clean. I've, yeah. you know, I'm, I've washed my hands. I'm, I'm thinking on a high level spiritually. But, you know, I just love all of his, all of his music. And um, I've, I stopped listening to it for the time being, because at one point when I was writing the last chapter of the book, I, you know, I was listening to Coltrane's music um, all day in my office while I was writing for months at yeah. a time. You know? <laughs> I love that image. Um, but I, I, I just, yeah, his, his music is, um, it's just, it's just wonderful. It's, and there's so much of it. There's so much of it. What about yourself? What do you um, like? I feel very similar to you've articulated it better, but I have a similar feeling about a love Supreme. I do not. It is not a casual listening record. It is. I have to approach it with a lot of intention. It actually not to overstate it, but it feels disrespectful to not have intention with that album. Um, It's earned that place. Um, But my favorite era that I go back to the most is um, I absolutely love the, um, the complete uh, Village Vanguard recordings with Eric Dolphy that that week of right. of music and the the version that came out you know I don't know in the early mid two thousands where it's it's all the sets from all the shows with you know several versions of um, impressions and India and uh, yeah I, I just I that that music is so profound to me and I and I loved the um, reading about how it angered and polarized people at the time. And later, you know, the following spring, there was an interview with Dolphy and Coltrane in Downbeat where they were basically taken to task because the jazz community said, this isn't music. This isn't jazz. What is this? And um, I just, I think that was, it's such, so I love that era. I love Africa Brass. Africa Brass was the first Coltrane I tried to listen to, but I was about 15 years old and it was completely impenetrable to me. Okay. Okay. And, and I stuck with it, and I was, you know, I've been rewarded for decades since. It's just, a, um, but at the time, I didn't have the ears. I didn't know how to hear it. Um, but uh, I, I just a funny aside or an interesting aside. Uh, maybe seven or eight years ago, um, maybe ten now, McCoy Tyner did um, a week at the Blue Note in New York, where uh, he and Charles Charles Tolliver's big band did the music of Africa Brass. Wow. And I saw three or four of those sets. Um, oh, you're lucky. Uh, I used to live in New York. So I'd go, I would see McCoy, you know, I would go every time he played. Um, he was my favorite. McCoy is my favorite. I lived in New York for one year. I wish I had stayed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm from Boston. It's a natural migration that. Yeah. You know, yeah. People... Well, you had great jazz music in Boston though, right? You had Paul's Mall. and. I, yeah. Oh man. I, I was at, Paul's Mall Jazz Workshop all the time. You know, I, that was great because um, the, you know, the musicians at that time, they were not huge superstars. So you could, you could talk to them. I met Grover Washington Jr. You know, he came over to my table because I, I had two beautiful black women um, with me. So I was dating <laughs> one of them and she brought her sister along. So I think that's why he did that. But he, he came over to me, he said, man, you look like my brother, you know? So and I was able to shake his hand. Yeah, we had, we had some really good jazz in, um, 
in, in Boston uh, in the 1970s into the 1980s. I've seen, I saw Farrell Sanders perform live at Tufts University gym. I'll never forget that as a college student. Wow. It just was a mind blowing, a mind blowing uh, experience. And um, yeah, but uh, New York is, New York is different because it has that, it, it has, I guess it still has that street with all of those music stores. That's right. Um, that's right. That's where, right. And, you know, when I was taking music lessons, that's where, you know, my music teacher told me how to, you know, where that street was. And when I wanted to buy a saxophone, he said, that's where you need to buy a saxophone. You know. Well, you know, I've heard, I've heard musicians say, whether it's, you know, famous ones we all know or, or others that there's basically three places that they play their hometown, New York, and everywhere else is just a blur on the map. But everybody knows when they're in New York, and they sort of you get a little extra when when the artists are in New York. Um, I guess, yeah, I guess, I guess so because so much of the music developed in New York, bebop developed in um, in in New York City, and um, yeah, yeah, but yeah. Uh, well. One other thing I'll leave you with just because uh, okay. you might find it interesting is uh, I saw a show once at Town Hall in New York and it was a double bill and it was Ravi and Anushka Shankar. Oh, my goodness. Opening for Alice and Ravi Coltrane. Oh, <laughs> it was may have been the other way. Or, I don't even remember. It was so I mean, time stopped. It was it was. I've always been been. Um... I'm interested in, in Ravi Coltrane. I mean, I, of course I have, I have several of his CDs, but um, it's yeah. hard to pinpoint um, who he is spiritually. Yeah. He does seem to have found his voice in the last decade or so as a musician. I it had to be, I mean, what a, what a, um, oh, man. what a punishing path to choose. I mean, that's the son of John Coltrane. Well, it's a talented, extremely talented saxophonist. His, his music is, is wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. All right. I really. And how, how are you going to use this um, material now? So we don't use the video. This is just so you and I have a connection while we speak. Okay. Um, and so we have a podcast. Um, I think it will probably be maybe two weeks before we get this episode up because I have a couple of, I have a couple scheduled. All um, right. And so it will be a podcast. We'll send you the, the link to it. Um, I get all the episodes um, transcribed. So I'd be happy to send you the transcription if you could use it for any reason. Um, yes. I, I, I'd like to have that. And as, as well as the, you know, the actual link to the, to the podcast. Yeah. And I can send yeah. you the raw recording as well. If, if you, uh, I don't know, I, I'm sort of an archivist. So if you you're going to edit, you're going to edit all of this. Of yeah. Course. Yeah. We'll clean it up. Yeah. We'll take Good. all this You'll clean out. it up. And, and then um, I probably will uh, give it to my publicist at NYU press and she'll, she'll probably want to put, uh, put it on the um, NYU press blog for a little Wonderful. Is that okay. That would be wonderful. We would love that. We would love well, that. you've, you're, are you in Los Angeles right now? I'm actually in Seattle. So when you said Seattle, oh, Seattle. My, ears per my ears perked up. Yeah, yeah. Another wonderful city. <laughs> yeah, and it's we're going through a very strange heat wave right now, which is, you know, the weather's beautiful, but it's not right. 
<laughs> oh my goodness. I, yeah, I've just, I've, I've been there one time and I just was so impressed by the beauty of the place. And, uh, you know, there's a small black community, uh, there. Yeah. Very vibrant I, African community. Um, uh, uh, Eritrean, yeah. Ethiopian. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting. Um, what's next to you is you, do you, are you have another book in the works? Are you, do you have a project? Well, actually, I'm I'm working on um, looking at a couple of projects, book projects. But I'm working on a um, book project now on um, on hip hop. Oh wow! Where I'm exploring um, some some um, similar themes in hip hop, the um, you know uh, Islamic themes, racial justice themes, and in, in, in hip hop. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, That's sort of where the last page of your book ended. You're going to pick up. (laughs) Yeah, so I kind of thought that uh, my editor thought that that would be a good sequel book project. That's great. That's sequel book project as well. But you know, it's hip hop is fascinating. It's of course completely different musical form from jazz. Yeah, yeah. Although the musicians respect their. There's a lot of. There's a lot of borrowing you know there's a lot there of, is yeah, yeah they yeah. borrow from every from every uh musical form yeah, yeah. yeah. well i'll be excited for that thank you so much for your for well thank you thank you for um for contacting me and thank you for all this and i guess i'll look forward to hearing something from you in the next month or so Thank you so much, Dr. Turner. Thank you, Aunt Taylor and the team at Light. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On. Get and share all of our past episodes, write a review, even send us a message through our website, spotlightonpodcast.com. Join us again next week. In the meantime, be safe and stay in touch. Stay in touch.